0: I'm Dr. Nadine gonzalez Jesus, President of San Antonio College. Today we'll be having a conversation about the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action. This is a two-part series, and today is the second part with Dr. Len Lira, Chair at San Antonio College.
1: Welcome back to Front and Center, part two of a conversation we're having about the uh, recent affirmative action ruling by the Supreme Court. Joined here this morning with Dr. Nadine Gonzalez de Jesus. Good morning.
0: Good morning, Headmaster. How are you this morning?
1: Loving it. It's a wonderful morning.
0: It is. It is indeed. I'm actually quite excited because today we have a special guest with us. His name is Dr. Lynn. Lida, He's uh, one of our chairs at San Antonio College. I would like for uh, the doctor to tell us a bit about his role at SAC and also uh, a bit about his experiences in higher education.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Dr. Nadine. And Hot Mustard, it's a pleasure to meet you in person, finally. (laughs) Nice to meet you. (laughs) So as you mentioned earlier, I'm the chair for the Public Policy and Service Department. Uh, We have political science, criminal justice, court reporting, human services, and in the fall we'll be uh, joined by the public administration program. Uh, As far as my history, I've been uh, in higher education for about 23 years. I started out in a professional military education institution, uh, teaching political science at West Point. I taught public administration and political science at San Jose State University. Um, And then a series of events occurred after the pandemic, and we found ourselves back in Texas, and I landed happily here at San Antonio College.
0: Wow. What a story. I mean, just the journey of your of your life. Where did you work prior to coming to San Antonio College? Where were you? I
1: was at San Jose State University. San
0: Jose State. Yes.
1: I was an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science, and uh-huh. I taught in the Master's of Public Administration program there.
0: And you did that for how long? I did Seven. that
1: for five years. I did it right after I retired from the military in 2017.
0: From the military. What branch of the military?
1: I served in the Army for 28 years. I uh, joined when I was 17, and I had a great—you know, most people have a bad history with their recruiters, but my recruiter actually was uh, phenomenal. He told me, he's like, you're going to go in the Army. I'm going to write your first letter of recommendation. You're going to get a scholarship, and you're going to become an officer. And he, he held his word, and uh, so I went and Enlisted in the sem- when I was 17, and then went to college. And my first uh, lettered recommendation for ROTC scholarship was from him.
0: So That's amazing, amazing. So you found a person who believed in you, who right. saw you.
1: Yeah, a long time ago, that, and I didn't even know him. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about paying it forward.
0: Absolutely. And that is exactly what you're doing now at SAC. Exactly. You are seeing our students and you meet them where they are and you're helping them achieve their their goals. Exactly. Their educational goals. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Lynn, I wanted to ask you a bit about affirmative action. What are your thoughts, first and foremost, about the decision of the Supreme Court?
1: Just off the cuff in an opinion of it is I think we're going to have to wait to see what happens with Regards to the impact it's going to have. Many people may not realize that affirmative action really only affects a very small percentage of people uh, who are are trying to get into higher elite universities. Of the vast majority of uh, students who go to community college or state-funded colleges, it really doesn't have that big of an effect. Uh, But it's more of the political perspective, the impact that it has on us as a society and what we want to live up to as our values as Americans.
0: And that is exactly why you're here, to tell us a bit about the historical and also the political perspectives of affirmative action. Could you expand upon that?
1: Yes. uh, So affirmative action is rooted, actually goes back in principle to the labor laws in the 1930s. And I think it was first codified by the Wagner Act. Uh, which allowed for certain demographic populations to unionize or to uh, come together and and address their grievances against labor movements. It was first used as a term uh, by President Kennedy in 1961 in his Executive Order 10952, and uh, it emanated from our culture of civil rights movements in the 1960s, and then there were several um, Supreme Court cases that adopted it and expanded it into the uh, higher education setting that we know it now, uh, but primarily, it began as, a, as an idea to not um, go back and fix the inequities and in the problems that we had in our history between race, racial relations, et cetera, but primarily to put a staunch on it and, and to begin building access to labor and to education, and et cetera.
0: Got it. Got it. So So let me ask you this. Could you talk a little bit about the Wagner Act?
1: So the Wagner Act—it was originally, from what I understand from the research—was just allowing certain demographics to be able to come together and unionize, or provide uh, some opportunities for them to coalesce and, and address their grievances with their employers. Uh, it was uh, in, enforced by the by the federal government at that time, and it's not well known in um, uh, in the journals of political history or anything like that. Uh, But when I was doing the research for this interview, that's what I came across and that identified that it was actually codified in that law. What we know of as affirmative action today, though, is really stemmed from the the norms that have uh, came out of the Civil Rights Movement from the 1960s um, and the ability of uh, or the requirement for any federal contractor to provide some kind of affirmative action uh, for groups that have been historically marginalized or not given access to education and, and employment opportunities. So the Supreme Court, when we talk about the Supreme Court and the history of the Supreme Court and all the rulings and the role of the Supreme Court, would you agree that you know, they, they kind of make these decisions based on what the country can handle at the time? Well, that's an interesting question and a lot of scholars debate on do they you know that's this debate is happening right now do they pay attention to popular opinion um and how do they make this decision on what they they think that the country can handle for example i think uh from a pure jurist perspective that they really try to look at what's constitutional right what's allowable and i think if you see the evolution of the Supreme Court rulings on race within a- academia, you, you see this this attempt to try to balance this reckoning that there are certain racial populations in our country that have not had the same opportunities as other racial uh, populations. And so how do we get past that? And so that's why they, I think they made their ruling uh, early on, like in Bakke versus uh, UT uh, Austin, uh, that you know race can be a factor, but you can't It can't be the only factor. It has to be part of a holistic perspective, right? And so it makes it where, you know, it's an acknowledgement that race is important, uh, but it's not the the determining factor, right? And I I think another interesting point that came out of the Supreme Court ruling was that they didn't address, if we're talking about values for the United States, they didn't really address, and they they affirmed (laughs) that they didn't address race within the military academies. In fact, they left that alone and they cited specifically that it was a national security reason, meaning that you know we have to have a diverse uh, fighting force that protects our constitution and our nation. So it's it's critical enough there that we're not going to touch it because it's too important. But yet we we think that we can we can evolve now beyond this, and and that's where the question is: Are, are, are we as a nation really evolved beyond that? And. I'm not sure we are. I mean, if you look at the statistics, uh, no matter what statistics you look at, whether it's in housing, with employment, you know, with the redlining and, and the uh, different types of uh, discrimination that we still see present in the, in the employment force, I'm not sure we're there yet. So, again, it's this, it's this ideology that's trying to drive the current makeup of the court's decisions.
0: Understood. So so I'm trying to have a better uh Understanding as to how history has impacted the decision of the court. Um, from what you're saying, this has years, mm-hmm. right, in which we have had to live with without affirmative action. Then we have affirmative action. Now we no longer will have affirmative action. Mm-hmm. And now I, you know, I'm trying to understand from a historical point of view. What do you foresee might occur? Mm-hmm. In the future
1: so I think it 's important to understand that um, the idea behind affirmative action, as it has evolved politically, has always put in contest two cherished American values: equality and equity. So, how do we address the uh, equal access under the law provisions, etc, but also recognize that there are certain uh, populations in our country who didn't start out at the same place, right? And so I think if you look at the laws or the opinions that have been handed down by the Supreme Court, you start to see this evolution of this, this thought of trying to debate between equality and equity. And eventually what the court ruled on is that race can be used, but not quotas. They specifically stated in one of their court rulings that quotas was unconstitutional. But race could be used and identified uh, as a means to increase diversity. And in fact, even in the current ruling, they recognize that race does provide a diverse perspective on education It is a value, right? But the court came down on the side of not using race specifically as the determining factor for how, how do we get to that diversity.
0: Could you tell us a bit about the quota system?
1: A quota system would be uh, that you would have to have certain targets for demographics from the population. So say, for example, if a certain population is 100% one state, so 30% is Hispanic, 20% is uh, black, uh, 60% are white, then the access to education, access to employment should match those demographics, right? And so we, we set targets that we're trying to establish. And that has never really been a means or an approved way by the american population in itself and if you look at the survey each and every one of the surveys that i looked at in the history of this they've never supported using race as a as a factor uh while understanding the diversity and that you know people from different backgrounds and different races do increase the diversity and the value of organizations and education systems when they encounter them it doesn't um they don't agree with the American people, don't agree with uh, using race specifically as a factor. So we have to come up with different ways to figure out how do we address that.
0: Interesting. And and what would be those other ways?
1: I think, you know, San Antonio College has got some really good examples in its history, right? So if you look at the um, the recent award that we recently had, the um, uh, Excellencia Award, right? you know, we got that award because we were a Hispanic supporting institution and uh, the policies that we put into place support that population, but they do not discriminate or target that population in and of itself. So that's it's correct we provide a policy that's broad enough to lift all boats, right? And in the same time, it raises the ones that may have had a lesser start. Uh, from an equitable perspective.
0: So, to lift all boats, mm-hmm. in what other ways have you seen that as a nation we've been able to lift other boats
1: or all boats? So, you know, we have a history and uh, our policies, public policies in the, in the United States of providing social services and stuff. I mean, if you look at the debates going on right now within the, even the, the, uh, the legislature, I was, it's curious to see, you know, we've had two recent bills that passed. Uh, that affect higher education. One dealing with performance-based funding for community colleges, and the other one that prevents offices of diversity, equity, inclusion, et cetera. And I know we're still trying to figure out what do those two bills entail for us as a community college, but to me it just shows that it goes back to supporting this idea that we want to be able to provide a means to allow everybody to have access to education, to employment, But we also want to make sure that we don't base that purely on one particular factor, right? My own opinion about those two uh, laws is that the performance-based funding bill, for example, has some wording in there that talks about making sure that equitable uh, funding is occurring. And if you look at the population for our community colleges across the nation, even in Texas, the majority of the population for community colleges are minorities. It's black, black and Hispanics um, and Asians. And so if we're talking about providing equitable funding for community colleges, in essence, you're addressing that population, right? And so that's one way of thinking of Uh, how we can we can address this and still meet the balance between equity and equality.
0: In your classroom uh, what are some of the things that you've seen uh, that has helped our students thrive even though they might come from a background and or from uh, an economic disadvantageous perspective that might not have allowed them to have had um, the level of exposure that they might need to education.
1: One of the main things that I've seen in my both my research and in the, the classroom teaching is the one-on-one engagement that students have with their faculty. You know, it's, it's that faculty-student engagement inside the classroom and outside the classroom that legitimizes, one, their reason for being there, right? If they see um, a, 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 a faculty member who came from their same background, has similar experiences, overcame those experiences, and can tell them how they can do that, and then also accepts them in the classroom and engages with them as a person and in, 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 in their ideas and their goals, they have longer, uh, longer-term longer success rates, even post-graduation into career fields, et cetera. It's been shown uh, in higher education research. So just the simple fact of engagement... Uh, with your students in the classroom and getting to know them one on one has been a very has been very helpful and that's that 's not hard that 's not an easy thing to do that 's a very labor intensive thing to do, uh, especially when you 're teaching five classes with thirty students each and i 'm always amazed at those professors who could remember you know every student in their class. I wish I could be that good
0: also it's when I speak to to some of of, of our team members um, it 's interesting how they state that. Our students come with so much mm-hmm. that they have to deal with, right? They wrestle with uh, housing and food insecure- insecurities. They also uh, wrestle with transportation. And to me, when I think about um, everything that our students uh, have to go through and face as a challenge, um, once they come to our classrooms, it does not matter who they are mm-hmm. or where they come from. If you're a student at San Antonio College or any the college, colleges in the Alamo Colleges District, it's important to understand that every student, they matter, mm-hmm. they matter. And we care, we care about our our, stu- our students. We really wanna make sure that our students have an opportunity to succeed. We want to ensure that our students have an opportunity to walk the journey to complete their education.
1: I couldn't agree more. In fact, I would, I would expand upon that and say, you know, even if you look at our population of uh, students who attend community colleges, it's still not the majority of people in the United States or in the state of Texas or in Bear County, et cetera. It's still a small minority of people, uh, regardless of what demographic they come from, who are attending And So by the very fact that they made the decision to better their lives and to go to uh, college and, and seek um, a better opportunities... They are, they are de facto becoming our future leaders in our communities. And I, I know that there's this tendency to, to look at the elite universities as the, the farmland, I guess, or the, the place where we, we get our, our, our national leaders, et cetera. Right. I, would, I would argue that we have more opportunity to create leaders for our community here in the community college because we, we, we attract and touch more of the population, and we can inspire them. To do that, just by the fact that they decided to, to take a college course, you know, we can acknowledge that, legitimize it, and help them uh, expand upon that.
0: Um, one last thought: oh. What lies ahead?
1: So, um, I think uh, we're going to see a little bit of turmoil and some conflict. You know, we've got a political season that's coming up. Uh, you're going to see political parties start to uh, divide on this camp. Uh, you can see uh, a lot of campaigns against it, but I think the way past this is through coalition building, right? It's through uh, building uh, partnerships with the businesses, uh, with the community, with the uh, government leaders to see how do, we, how do we meet the balancing of these two uh, values in America, the equality and equity at the same time, no, acknowledging that both are, are, are very uh, long-time and historical and, and uh, important values to us as American citizens.
0: Dr. Lita, thank you so much for your thoughts this morning. You're welcome. Thank you. This is Front and Center, recorded at the KSYM studios on the San Antonio College campus. Front and Center is available on Spotify Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and airs Monday mornings at 8.30 on KSYM 90.1 FM in San Antonio. More information on Front and Center is online at ksym.org.